0: Hello, my name is Rosamond and today we continue to follow Jesus through this dramatic week in Jerusalem as every day he teaches and proclaims the good news to the crowds and the people see him as their longed for Messiah, their king and liberator, who the prophets spoke about, their Messiah, who according to the scriptures will restore God's kingdom, which they know must be Israel and overthrow the Romans who are occupying their land and oppressing their people. And as the crowds gather and follow Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and those who follow Herod, the Jewish puppet king, are increasingly afraid of Jesus' power over the people. And as we've already heard, they're trying to find ways to trap Jesus and to kill him. They've heard him teach his radical new message and seen him perform miracles. Jesus is threatening their world, their power over the people, which can be abusive and manipulative. And they're afraid he'll damage their relationship, their special relationship with the occupying Roman forces. And Jesus had just told a damning story, a parable of of a vineyard owner and the murder of his son, which those listening would have easily understood with its familiar imagery to them of God. And there was no doubting the fact that that they, the religious leaders, were the villains of the story. So they were even more determined to trap him. And they needed to do this in front of the crowd so that people could witness it. So let's read on. Keeping a close watch on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God, what is God's? They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So into trying to trap Jesus, these people asked a seemingly straightforward question. How he first flattered him in front of the crowd, declaring that what he teaches is right and without partiality and in accordance with the truth. And so demonstrating to the crowd their apparent respect for Jesus and his teaching and his integrity. So they ask whether people should pay their taxes to the Romans. And we can see the challenge in this. Should the people act together and withhold their taxes from this cruel, occupying power? However, the question is more complicated than that. And everyone listening knows this. The Jewish people hated paying this tax. And if Jesus had said that they should pay it, he would be viewed not as their king and Messiah, but as a traitor. But it could also potentially discredit him as a rabbi, as a a spiritual leader. Because some people saw paying this tax as an offence against God, paying money to the Romans that should have been paid to God and for God's work. However, if Jesus had replied that the tax shouldn't be paid to the Romans, then he would have been arrested and killed for this. And although we know that that is what happened a short time after this incident, this wasn't the right time or the right way for this to happen. So the question is whether earnest Flattery is sure that one way or another they have him cornered in front of the crowd, but they're wrong. And I love this bit. Jesus has a clever response which we've seen him use before, he asked the question. And in Matthew's version, he calls them hypocrites. And I love what it says next, they were stunned into silence. So what about his response? This simple question he asks, and is so often using a familiar object to make his point, an ordinary Roman coin, a denarius. And his reply to their answer, a sentence which has actually become a familiar phrase, isn't it, in the language? And give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Familiar in the old authorised version translation of render and to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, which I think is one of those phrases people today probably attribute to Shakespeare, but is a well-known phrase. Well, at one level, this response just deals swiftly with the attempts to divert him away from his teaching a refusal to be sidetracked from his message. In this time, you see a great intensity in Jesus' teaching, an urgency to teach the people the truth, because he knew he didn't have long left, and there was still so much that they didn't understand. But this simple response also conveys a message about the way in which the followers of Jesus should engage with the secular world. At this time, the Jewish teaching was that you were either loyal to the Jewish faith and its laws and its ways of life, or to the secular world, in this case the Roman state. They were separate, but Jesus' response actually identifies that we live in a world that can't be separated, and where we as his followers have to make decisions as to how to live our lives, giving to God what belongs to God, and well, actually there isn't an end, is there? Because as Christians, we live all our life for God. There isn't a religious bit and a non-religious bit. There's just the lives we live with God at the centre and a part of all that we do. Well, I know that makes it sound easy and it isn't always, is it? But if our intention is to live our whole life for God, that's an excellent starting place. And the other part to this is that if we live our lives wholeheartedly for God, longing for his kingdom to come on earth, the kingdom foretold in those Old Testament fro- prophecies, and by Mary singing her Magnificat when she knew she was carrying Jesus, the Messiah, and by Jesus at the start of his ministry, And how can that come about except through the actions of us, God's people? We're the only way in which God can work on earth. And I always find that actually incredibly humbling and awe-inspiring. The thought that it's through me, of all my faults and failings, that God brings about his kingdom on earth. And obviously not just me, but you and all of us who are God's children. So today and tomorrow, how might you live for God? At present, so demanding in time for some, it may be as simple as how you consciously behave towards someone, maybe even someone that you live with. That can actually make a huge difference. It may be that when you go shopping, you add an item to your trolley for the food bank or for Triangle. You might offer to go for a walk with someone who lives alone. Or it might be bigger. You might choose to challenge poverty and injustice by the way you choose to spend your money. You might sign an online petition. The biggest changes to evil and injustice in the world come about because they're challenged and brought into the light. And just remember, you can't change everything. So whatever you choose to do, big or small, then do it consciously and wholeheartedly for God. I'm going to end today with a prayer because it's through prayer that God brings about his kingdom on earth, sometimes in dramatic ways, but often through the actions of his people. So I'm going to end with a prayer. I found this prayer in a city centre cathedral and it's attributed to St Aidan who was, lived in the fourth century on the island of Lindisfarne. But actually it's about the world and the world today and for many of us It's just the prayer that we need today. So let's pray. Leave me alone with God, as much as may be. As the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, make me an island set apart, alone with you, God, holy to you. And then, with the turning of the tide, Prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond, the world that rushes in on me. Till the waters come again, unfold me back to you. Amen.